or two weeks ago, I took part in an online prayer meeting organised by Christ Central, which is the family of churches that we belong to here, for those of you who are new or visiting. And I guess there must have been about maybe 60 participants in this online prayer meeting um, from maybe 20 different nations uh, situated in a dozen or so time zones. And we were all connected by computer video link on Zoom. And I'm conscious that this talk is being recorded. So for reasons that will become obvious, I'll keep any identifying details quite vague. But one participant, and I'll call him Ezekiel, was from a Muslim-majority country where officially Christianity is a permitted religion, but in reality, Christians and churches there are routinely subjected to harassment and intimidation and false accusations of blasphemy, which carries the death sentence there, while the police just stand by. And Ezekiel was telling the rest of us on our computer screens the story of his church, which is situated in a very large and bustling city, capital city. And he told us about how his church, planted by his father with a team of just eight people in 1998, steadily began to grow, which also means that it began to get noticed. And at one time, when Ezekiel was just a child, I'm guessing he may have been, this may have been 20 or so years ago, uh, at that time, uh, a coalition of 12 imams from the city issued a joint statement calling for the death of Ezekiel's father by beheading. So the family had to leave everything and go into hiding and flee for their safety. But sometime later, from uh, where they were, Ezekiel's parents felt they heard from God, calling them to return to their flourishing church plant and not to fear any man. And the Lord's promise to them was that he would protect them. Well, when you got a word from God as clear as that, you've got to be absolutely sure that you're hearing from him right, haven't you? You've got to be, you've got to be clear it's God. But full of faith, they went back and they ministered openly, and the church continued to see God do amazing things, beautiful conversions, whole families coming to Christ and getting baptized, healings, demons being driven out of people, amazing provision, beautiful relief for the poor, incredible answers to prayer. It was the whole shebang was going on in this church. And today that church has grown from being able to be counted on the fingers of two hands to numbering about 2,200 people in an Islamic stronghold. And not one hair on Ezekiel's father's head has so far been harmed. And I found what Ezekiel said that afternoon quite inspirational, actually, and really challenging, don't you? But it made me think, actually, what would I have done in that situation? What would I myself have done? Would I have how, how would I have responded to death threats on me from enemies of the gospel? Would I have put my personal happiness, my personal safety above, uh, and my family's safety above 
Christ's command to preach the gospel to all creation. What would you have done? And then I read the passage that I'm going to be speaking on today from Matthew 10, beginning to prepare for it. And this is the conclusion of Jesus' instruction to the twelve, preparing them for the mission he is about to send them on. And last week we saw that for some Christ followers, faith in him will mean rejection, ostracism, bullying, and worse by society in general. And Michael gave us some quite moving examples of that, didn't he? But this week, the focus moves away from the public sphere and into the intimacy of the home. Jesus is going to show that belonging to him will also often lead to friction and cooling in our family relationships. And we need to know that and be prepared for it. Well, now, all the way through Matthew's Gospel, we find Jesus presenting us with binary choices, a decision between two options. According to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, you're either on the wide road that leads to destruction or you're on the narrow road which leads to life. There is no alternative route. It's one or the other. You're either a healthy tree that bears good fruit or you're a bad one producing rotten fruit. There isn't a third tree. You're either building your house on sand, which ends in disaster, or you're on the rock where your house will stand firm. There are no ever other houses mentioned. You're either like a wise bridesmaid who is watchful and ready and who gets to the wedding reception, or you're like a sleepy foolish one who runs out of oil and misses out altogether. You're either a sheep who gains eternal life or a goat who goes away to eternal punishment. Either God will say to you, well done, or the world will. But you cannot hear it from both. And our passage this morning begins with yet another of these black and white binary choices. Either you're on Jesus' side or you reject him. There is no third way. And the consequences are weighty and they are serious. And Jesus is absolutely clear and uncompromising about where our priorities should lie. And no one can say, well, no one told me. I didn't know. Jesus makes it clear. So this is Jesus now rounding off his coaching session for the 12 apostles as they prepare to go out on mission. Matthew 10, 32, reading to the end of the chapter. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. 
If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. So more stark contrast, you notice. But then some lovely promises. Anyone who receives you receives me. And anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. If you receive a prophet as one who speaks for God, you'll be given the same reward as a prophet. And if you receive righteous people because of their righteousness, you will be given a reward like theirs. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. So, Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we ask now, as we come to dive into it, that you will be our teacher, speak to us, Lord, comfort us, warn us, surprise us, bless us. In Jesus' name, Father, we pray. Amen. Well, what we've just read together, I would say, contains surely one of the top 10 most surprising things that Jesus ever said. Don't imagine, he says, that I came to bring peace on the earth. Some people think that Jesus was all about setting up a hippie colony where everyone holds hand in a circle and sings kumbaya, eating organic yogurt. But he wasn't. I came not to bring peace, he says, but a sword. And whatever version you read that in, NIV, NLT, RSV, NRSV, ESV, today's ESV, Good News Bible, the message, it comes out pretty well the same. Now, isn't this the Jesus you know and love? Could this be the same man who tenderly touches the eyes of the blind and gives them back their sight? Could these be from the one who welcomed little children and commended them as role models for us? Could this really be the same man who, as we saw just two weeks ago, had amazing compassion for the oppressed and bewildered crowds so much compassion, but it just churns him up emotionally. Didn't Isaiah prophesy, by the way, that the Messiah would be called the Prince of Peace? And now he's saying he's come to bring sword, a sword that causes painful family division. Now, this is a side of Jesus that is normally airbrushed out of children's Bibles. And it's not an aspect you hear about very much in preaching or worship songs, come to think of it, either. And Jesus' sword is, of course, not a literal flashing blade of steel. And in fact, when Peter took up a sword to defend Jesus at his arrest, the Lord rebuked him and said, put that away, Peter. This is not who we are. And Jesus goes on to explain here 
that is not talking about a literal lethal weapon, but rather about an issue that can sharply divide opinion. This is a sword that divides light from darkness, that divides truth from lies, that, di that divides trusting Christ from trusting self. And Matthew, tell, Matthew 10, the whole of the chapter, tells you about the kind of friction and conflict that can arise when you start living as a Christian, as I said. But what impact does Jesus have on family life, generally speaking? Been a Christian over 40 years now. I can't believe it, but I have. And in my time as a Christian, long time now, four decades, I've seen orphans and widows find a home, literally. I've seen the lonely put into community by the grace of God. I've seen barren women become mothers. I've seen broken marriages get mended. I've seen dysfunctional relationships get healed and estranged children get restored to their parents. I've seen that even in my own family. And when the Holy Spirit gets hold of a family, beautiful things can happen. But alas, it isn't always like that. In some Orthodox Jewish families, if somebody becomes a Christian, they arrange a funeral and consider that family member dead. Worse, in some Hindu and Muslim families, parents arrange so-called honor killings for their own children if they convert to Christ. The international Christian charity Open Doors reported in 2018 in their newsletter the story of a 14-year-old Ugandan girl named Susan Itungu. And Susan refused to renounce Christ even when locked in a room and left to starve by her father. Her school had welcomed a visiting speaker who told these teenage children about Jesus. She'd never heard of him before. And as Susan heard about the grace of God and the love of God that came down to earth to save her from her sins, she was convicted of her need for forgiveness. She, her heart was set on fire and she gave her life to Christ. Oh, happy day. But then her father, a witch doctor, was very angry about this. And he tried to stop her from following Jesus. He barred her from church, any contact with the church. He threatened to kill both her and her brother if she didn't stop worshiping Christ. But Susan refused to comply. And then one day he took her into a room in the house and he put a mat on the floor. And he told her to sit on this mat and not move from it until she was willing to deny Christ. And he didn't return to that room for three months. And during that time, her brother would sneak in uh, glasses of water and an occasional fried banana to, to feed her. And after this three-month period, neighbors of Susan began to wonder where she was. And Susan's brother finally told them what was going on. Well, the neighbors called the police, who came and found her sitting in her own filth on this mat. She was barely alive, dangerously undernourished. 
and the bones in her legs had become a bit deformed by her posture and lack of exercise. When they opened the door, she says, I felt peace and I knew that God had sent me help. She was rushed to hospital and they, she began to receive exhaustive and extensive treatment. And they asked her why she didn't try to escape or even leave the mat. And she said, well, because my father told me that if I ever left this mat, I would be denying Jesus. Your enemies will be in your own household, says Jesus. And since that time, Susan's had several operations. She's doing well. She's had physiotherapy, trauma counseling, and she's learned to forgive her father. And her faith has grown stronger and more resilient. She says, I cannot leave Jesus. I decided not to leave him because he's given me eternal life. And even if I died there in that room, I was sure that I would go to be with the Lord. I thank God, she says, very much that I am alive. He has watched over my life. It's a shocking story, isn't it? And if you are at a loss to understand why Christians experience such hostility from time to time from family members, then verse 37 to 39 help us to understand why. And they speak of three new realities in a believer, that those who reject Christ can start to become resentful about. So verse 37, there it is on the screen, speaks about a new love, a new love. I remember hearing the testimony of a newly converted British woman whose delight was in reading the Word of God, and especially the Gospels, new Christian. And her husband uh, threw her Bible across the bedroom and said, if you keep reading this rubbish, I will leave you. If you love your father or mother or your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine, says Jesus. Sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? But the point here is not that Christians can stop loving family members if it's inconvenient. So just in case you've been looking for an excuse to uh, get your mother-in-law out of your life or sever contact with your obnoxious teenager or ditch your lazy, unbelieving husband, it's not this, okay? It's not here. This is about placing our love for Jesus above our love for any family member. You might say, but wait a minute, I heard that loving our family is required by God, isn't it? And it is. Absolutely it is. Fifth commandment says to honor, honor your father and mother. And Jesus is not downgrading that at all here. In fact, what Jesus says here is completely consistent with Old Testament law. Jesus is saying here, in effect, that the first four commandments to love God above all others, to serve no idols, even family, to hallow his name and to prioritize time for worship. Those four commandments come before the fifth commandment, 
on the list because they must take precedence. It's God first. People worship an idol when they turn a good thing into the greatest thing. So if you value your children or your family or, or work or sports or even success or money, if you value these things, great, fine, enjoy them. They are good gifts from God for your enjoyment. But if you turn these good things, even family, into ultimate things so that your whole life revolves around them, you've made them an idol. Well, as well as experiencing this new love, which is superior to all others, the love for Jesus, following Jesus also demands a new lifestyle. Verse 38. And sometimes family members can take exception to this as well, the lifestyle of taking up a cross and following Jesus. Well, what does that actually mean? When people sometimes talk about their minor ailments or a spouse that snores at night in bed as the cross I have to bear. Have you heard that? Just the cross I have to bear, my snoring husband. But everyone knew what taking up a cross meant in Jesus' day. A spectacle of a condemned man being led out with the crossbeam over his shoulders and marched to his grisly fate. It was a common sight. It's like the dreaded moment of truth on death row. The last appeal of many has failed. The last meal has been eaten and the chair awaits. And Jesus is saying here, you've, you've got to put to death the idea of living for yourself first. You've got to lay down your personal ambitions and ego and be ready, if necessary, to forgo uh, pleasure and comfort for the eternal delight of belonging to him and knowing him, which is greater by far. I've shared this quote with you before, my records tell me, but it's one of my favorite quotes from the American Baptist writer and pastor, John Piper. He says this, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. I love that. Your joy will be full. But life will be hard. New love, new lifestyle. And in verse 39, Jesus talks about new longings. And again, having new dreams and desires will cause offense to some of our loved ones. What do we really live for at the end of the day? The more we live for the comforts in this life, like popularity and financial security, the more we will discover how empty they are. And when we try and find meaning and direction in life outside of Jesus, we end up seeing how futile and empty it all is. It's like a Penrose staircase. There's one on the screen coming up in a minute. Maybe it's not. Like, yeah, there it is. Penrose staircase, that's called. Look at it. It always leads nowhere. The French existentialist philosopher Albert Camus said that life is like 
Sisyphus in Greek mythology. This guy, Sisyphus, he was condemned by the gods to push a rock up a hill every day, only to see it roll back down again, just before it reached the top. And each day, this guy, Sisyphus, he would wake up to the same wearisome and pointless task, pushing the rock up the hill again. And Camus' only recommendation was to grind out this meaningless existence with a smile on your face. Now, the quest for ultimate meaning and satisfaction in life, when we exclude Jesus from the center of it, always ends in disappointment. See, however rich you become, you can own a Ferrari, you can have a castle with a moat around it in the highlands of Scotland, you can have a luxury villa on the Caribbean and a super yacht, but when you die, you will leave this earth the same way you entered it with nothing, nothing at all. If you cling to your life, if you cling to these things, Jesus said, you're going to lose it. You'll lose all of it. I've conducted enough funerals in my time to know how pathetic some of the tributes can be of those who clung to this life, and that's all they had. Oh, he loved a pint. What a legend. Ah, she was so devoted to her six dogs, they meant everything to her. She met her idol, David Beckham, and got a selfie with him. Best day of her life. I've heard these sort of things at funerals. And what Jesus says in these verses can make it seem like we are giving up so much to follow him. But Jesus finishes by talking about Rewards, in fact. Receive a prophet, it's just like receiving Jesus himself. Receive a righteous person, you get a reward as great as theirs. Just give a cup of cold water to a disciple, you get far back, you get back far more than you put in. And however much we may suffer for Christ, The rewards, the rewards, oh, the rewards for faithfulness are far, far beyond anything that we could ordinarily expect in return. And that's his promise, and his promise is sure. Following Jesus is the most wonderful thing on earth. But that does not mean it's not costly sometimes, and Matthew chapter 10 has made that abundantly clear. Sometimes it is costly. When we talk about following in the footsteps of Jesus, it's easy to remember that his footsteps had nail holes in them. Well, now we've reached the end of chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, and next week in the run-up to Easter, which is quite early this year, end of March, We're going to be fast-forwarding from chapter 10 to chapter 26, which takes us into the very last week, in fact, the last few days of Jesus' life. And we're going to walk together through his betrayal and his arrest, his trial, his passion, his death, and his resurrection in the next two months. And we're going to explore the most important question you will ever ask. It's a question in Alpha, actually. Why did Jesus die? Why? Why did he die? 
and we're going to reflect on the most important question you will ever answer. How will I personally respond to what he did for me on the cross? Well, as I end, a little illustration for you. After I asked Kathy to marry me, and she said yes, by the way, <laughs> and I think we can all agree that is evidence that the day of miracles is not over. Anyway, after proposing to Kathy, I went out to buy her an engagement ring. And I checked my bank account, and I found to my dismay, I had just 76 pounds in there. 76 quid to my name. And even in 1982, 76 quid wasn't all that much money. So we went to a jeweler's in uh, South End High Street, and I said to her, ever the romantic, look, I've only got 76 quid, so I'm afraid you're going to just have to pick the best one you can find for that. <laughs> well, we came across a simple, a simple ring, tiny solitaire diamond, set in cheap nine-carat gold, 75.99, as I remember. Kathy said, that's the one. So I went in and bought it. Uh, they can keep the penny change. Uh, everything I had, I gladly spent on that ring. I lavished my very last penny on my fiance. She gets it all. And why? Because Kathy is the love of my life. And over the years, I've, I've looked at that modest little ring on her finger, and I thought, well, we've got a bit more in the bank these days. I should treat her maybe. I'll get her a bigger better, shinier, blingier, flashier, pricier, glitzier ring. But I never have done, A, because I'm a bit tight. <laughs> <laughs> but B, because Kathy would say, I don't want another ring. This one is irreplaceable because it cost you everything you had. It's irreplaceable. And Jesus is not looking for ostentatious displays of devotion from us today. He beckons us to come to him with simplicity of heart, but all of the heart, all of it. And this is why we share communion together every month. So let's come to the Lord's table now. And as we do that, brothers, sisters, let's re-establish, reassert him as the first above every other love, because he put us first, didn't he, when he went to the cross for us. And Paul is going to lead us in communion now.